Chapter 9. Oh, the shame of it! The humiliation! John wept breathlessly as he read, shocked and frightened, indignant and angry at the world that had suddenly turned against him. Mean old things, John thought, blaming Miss Plimsoll and Mrs. Quaver for his failures, even though nothing that had happened to him had been their fault in any way. Horrible old school, he thought, even though he had liked school until that morning. Hateful Susan, he thought, even though he knew at the same time that he was really longing for her to be friendly with him again. Through the window, Mrs. Midas saw John coming up the pathway. Hello, John, dear, she called from the living room. You're home early today. How nice. As a reward, there'll be a piece of chocolate after supper. I hate it, John shouted. He was crying too hard to say anything else for a moment. When she heard the sound of his voice, Mrs. Midas rushed into the hall. Why, what's the matter, dear, she asked, putting her arm around him. John twisted away from her grasp, ran past her, and started up the stairs towards the bedroom. Susan doesn't want me at her birthday party, he said as he went. I know she doesn't. Well, I don't want to go to her rotten old party anyway. I don't think you really mean that, Mrs. Midas says. Besides, she added, and John was halted by the softness of her voice. Mrs. Buttercup just telephoned to say she was going to drive over herself at four o'clock to pick you up. She did, John said, blinking down at his mother from the top of the stairway. Yes, she did, Mrs. Midas assured him. So you'd better hurry and get yourself washed and brushed. Your party clothes are laid out on your bed. There were games on the Buttercup's lawn while it was still warm enough outside. Later, the party supper, including the birthday cake, was going to be served indoors, and there would be a magician and a short movie. John joined in the blindsmith's bluff and grandmother's footsteps and fox and geese, and soon he became more cheerful. He even temporarily forgot about chocolate. Susan looked very pretty. Her yellow curls had been brushed so hard that they looked silkier than ever. She was wearing a big blue ribbon the same color as her eyes. Her cheeks were flushed with excitement, a deeper pink than her new party dress. On her feet were dainty little white socks and white shoes with straps that buttoned. Between games, Susan smiled at John and said, I'm glad you came. They seemed to be on good terms again. Then Mr. Buttercup approached, bringing a bucket of water from the garage. He set it down in the middle of the lawn without spilling a single drop. We're going to duck for apples, Susan whispered to John. The boys against the girls. You can be captain of the boys' team. The two teams lined up for the race, Susan leading the girls and John the boys. The idea is this, Mrs. Buttercup explained. When I say go, not yet, John, Susan and John will run to the bucket. There are 12 apples floating in the bucket and 12 people in the race. Using only their teeth, Susan and John will grab their apples and run back to their lines. As soon as they touch the hands of number two runners in their teams, Denny and Duncan, Susan and John will go to the end of their lines, and Denny and Duncan will run to the bucket to duck for apples. Do you all understand the way it's going to work? All right, one to get ready, two to get steady, and three to go. Susan bounded ahead like a jackrabbit and had her face deep in the bucket. By the time John reached her side and crouched down for his apple, he got his eye on a big red one with his stalk jutting up conveniently for him to grab. He lowered his face, opened his mouth, and lunged. Somehow his nose reached the apple before his teeth did and pushed it below the surface of the water. John's mouth followed the apple down. Then a terrible thing happened. The clear water in the bucket turned into dark brown, sweet, liquid chocolate. Susan and John immediately pulled their heads up, but it was too late. Their faces were drenched with chocolate syrup. Oh, Susan exclaimed, wiping chocolate out of her eyes. Chocolate syrup dripped all down the front of her delicate pale pink dress. Oh, she moaned. 
John was in the same state. There was chocolate all over his face. There was chocolate on his white shirt front and on his gray flannel shorts, and there was chocolate in his mouth. Glug, John said, glug. Susan was too surprised and angry to speak. For the second time that day, she turned her back on John and ran away from him. Mrs. Buttercup offered to clean John up, but he couldn't bear to stay at the party in another minute. He started off at once for home. Chapter 10. Dragging along and thinking of all the dreadful things that had happened, John had walked about halfway home when he heard the cheery voice of his father. Hello, hello, called Mr. Midas, crossing over from the other side of the street. He was on his way home from the station. You left the party rather early, didn't you? What? Mr. Midas had just seen the patches and streaks of chocolate that were drying on John's face and on his clothes. Good gracious, he said. No wonder you left the party early. How did that happen? John burst into tears. It had all been so awful. But now he could tell his father about his terrible day. He stopped crying and only sniffed a little now and then as he told the whole story about taking the coin to the candy store, about buying the box that had that turned out to have only one chocolate in it, about the toothpaste, about breakfast, the gloves, the silver dollar, the pencil, the lunch, the trumpet, and finally the apple ducking water. You mean to tell me they all really turn into chocolate, Mr. Midas asked? You're sure you didn't imagine some of this? Oh, no, John assured him. Well, Mr. Midas said, still looking doubtful, we're only a couple of blocks from that candy store of yours. Not that I've ever noticed one there. Suppose we stroll over and ask the man whether his chocolates always do strange things to people. It's on the next corner, John said, recognizing some of the houses on the side street. Not the next house, not the house, not the next, he said. But John's voice faded into silence. The corner where he had found the candy store was nothing now but an empty lot. Flat, open ground, littered with a pile of rusty tin cans and broken bottles around a splintery old sign saying, For sale. Hmm, said Mr. Minus, frowning anxiously at John. I think we'd better pay a visit to Dr. Cranium before we go home. That's where the store was, though, John protested, beginning to cry again. He had shed more tears in that one day, it seemed, and certainly eaten more chocolate than in all the other days of his life put together. I know it was. Dr. Cranium was a busy man. As luck would have it, however, he was able to see Mr. Midas and John almost at once. Well, 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 said Dr. Cranium. And how are we getting along now, John? Have we cut down on our candy, eh? How do you do, John responded dully. Apparently he's had a da bad day, Dr. Cranium. Mr. Midas said, trouble at school, you know, and a little accident at a birthday party. What I'm worried about is that he, he keeps saying that everything he puts into his mouth turns to chocolate. No more than a nursery fantasy, I'm sure, Dr. Cranium said to Mr. Midas. Well, John, he went on, looking down with a smile, suppose you tell me in your own words what the matter seems to be. Everything I put into my mouth turns into chocolate, John explained. Everything I eat and everything I drink tastes, turns, changes into chocolate. I'm thirsty and I'm getting a pain, a bad one, I think. Dr. Cranium sighed patiently and invited John to open his mouth and say, Ah, ah, John said. Dr. Cranium peered into John's mouth briefly and gave a low whistle of surprise. This chocolate eating simply must stop. He went to a supply cabinet. 
I don't think there's any time to be lost, he told Mr. Midas. I'm going to give this boy some of my own special compound. Dr. Cranium's elixir, I call it. Never fails. Dr. Cranium selected a large bottle from one of the cabinet's crowded shelves. He removed the top from the bottle. He got a spoon from another shelf. He filled the spoon with an oily, greenish, yellowish medicine that had yellowish, reddish lights glinting in it. It doesn't taste very pleasant, Dr. Cranium warned John in a pleasant tone of voice, but I'm sure it'll do the trick. Clear the stomach and you clear the mind. That's what I always say. Dr. Cranium offered John the brimful spoon. Must I, John asked his father. I know it'll turn into chocolate. Go on, Mr. Midas said encouragingly. Drink it down. John took the spoon between his lips. The medicine turned to chocolate. The spoon turned to chocolate. John choked and spluttered and chocolate syrup spurted from his mouth. Dr. Cranium dropped the spoon in alarm. When it struck the white tiled floor, the chocolate handle snapped into several pieces. Mercy, said Dr. Cranium. I've never seen anything like it. The boy's whole system seems to be so chocolified that it chocolifies everything it touches. After he had recovered somewhat, the doctor went on. I believe that this must be an unprecedented case of er, chocolateitis. I shall call it Cranium's disease. I shall want to make an exhaustive study of the child. I, I think John has had enough excitement for one day, Mr. Midas said. Chapter 11. Mrs. Midas was much upset when Mr. Midas told her that John had Dr. Cranium's disease. He said it was chocolateitis, Mr. Midas explained, a worried frown on his face. But he's calling it Cranium's disease because it was his discovery. Dr. Cranium didn't do it, John said. It's magic. It all started after I ate that chocolate. I'm scared, he added. Mrs. Midas sat down and dabbed her eyes with a lace handkerchief. She was crying. Mr. Midas blew his nose and said he had to attend to something and abruptly left the room. John had been so busy feeling sorry for himself that he had not realized how his mother and father would feel about his chocolate disease. Never mind, mother, he said, putting his arm around her shoulders. It's all right. Really, nothing was all right, but he couldn't bear to see his mother's tears. He kissed her wet cheek. His eyes were shut as his lips slow, softly touched her, so he didn't see the change right away. Then his lips began to feel sticky. He opened his eyes. His mother had turned into a lifeless statue of chocolate. John ran wildly out of the house without thinking where he was going or what he was going to do. All he knew was that somehow he must get help. For the first time in a long while, he forgot about himself altogether. Now that he didn't care about anything but bringing his mother back to life. Without quite knowing how he got there, John found himself at the corner where he had bought the chocolate box. The lot was no longer an untidy rubbish dump. The neat red brick building with two show windows was exactly where it had been in the first place. But the display of candy he had previously seen in the window was no longer there. In one window, John saw a chocolate trumpet, a chocolate pencil, and a silver dollar with a piece beaten, bitten out of it. In the other window, he saw a cafeteria tray littered with chocolate utensils and the remains of a chocolate lunch. Clearly, this place was the right one. Clearly, the proprietor must know a lot about John's hateful chocolate touch. John rushed into the store. 
The proprietor was standing behind the counter, carefully polishing something small and round and flat and silver. I was just thinking of you, he said. John had no time to waste on pleasantries. Remember the old coin I found and gave you and you gave me a magic pocket, he demanded. Without waiting for a reply, he babbled on. I ate it and it made everything that touches my mouth turn to chocolate and I kissed my mother and now she's chocolate and I've got to change her back. Easy now, murmured the storekeeper. Calm yourself. There was an expression of satisfaction in the old man's eyes. It's all your fault, John declared. If my mother isn't made better again, I'll fight you till you're dead. My goodness, the storekeeper exclaimed. Whose fault did you say? Yours, John said. If you hadn't taken that money, I wouldn't have... Now, John, the storekeeper interrupted, I must insist on honesty. I'm glad to hear that you're thinking about your mother for a change. Unselfishness is important, but honesty is also important. If you'll be truthful, perhaps I can help you. John's ears reddened. It was becoming unmistakably evident to him that he only had himself to blame for all this unhappiness. He looked straight into the storekeeper's eyes. I'll do anything. I'll work for you all my life for nothing if you'll turn my mother back. You can turn me into chocolate instead if you want. You, the storekeeper apparently ignored John's offers. You were right, John, he said, when you guessed that I had something to do with you acquiring the chocolate touch. But you yourself earned the coin that brought the chocolate touch. Only greedy people can even see that kind of money. Dr. Cranium was right up to a point. I suppose that one could say that you had chocolateitis, but it was just an outward sign of selfishness. My mother, John reminded the storekeeper frantically, my mother's turned to chocolate. Do something about it. Oh, please do something about it. I'm glad that you are concerned, the shopkeeper commented unhurriedly. Part of your cure is to be concerned about other people. You have been so greedy that you didn't care what happened to other people. Oh, I know, I know, John admitted woefully, but please decide about me later and please make my mother better now. Well, John, the storekeeper said, if you had to choose between getting rid of your chocolate touch and restoring your mother to life, which would it be? For one moment, John couldn't help imagining a future of all chocolate meals. The thought was terrible. But then he thought of his mother as she had been when he had left her, a motionless chocolate statue, unable to speak, her chocolate hand still holding her lace handkerchief. Without further hesitation, John said, help my mother. Well, John, the storekeeper said, I'm going to give you another chance. When next you go to school, your chocolate pencil will be a real wood pencil with lead in it. But John began to protest. What did the pencil matter? The chocolate knife and fork and spoon you left on the tray in the cafeteria will have turned back to metal. Your chocolate trumpet will be a shiny golden one again. But, John said, don't worry, Dr. Cranium's spoon. He will find a whole silver one on the floor where the broken chocolate one lay. But how about, John said, Susan Buttercup will discover that the chocolate stains on her party dress and her party shoes were nothing but water after all. Her silver dollar will be all right. John could stand the suspense no longer. My mother, he shouted. What about my mother? Will she be all right? The storekeeper smiled. Why don't you run along home and find out, he suggested. John turned without even saying goodbye and ran out of the store. The storekeeper went back to the disc that he had been polishing, a disc the size of a quarter. It had to be polished smooth, ready for a new set of initials in case the need for them should arise. Chapter 12. 
The front door was open and John rushed into the living room where he had left his mother. She was not there now, but on the chair was a small, wet lace handkerchief. John ran into the dining room and onto the kitchen. As he came to the kitchen door, he heard the ring of silver against crockery. Then he saw a wonderful sight, his mother arranging things on a tray. He dashed into the kitchen and flung his arms around his mother's waist, sobbing and laughing with relief and joy. There, there, said Mrs. Midas, stroking the head from John's forehead. You've had a very disturbing day, dear. But in a few minutes, we're all going to have supper and everything will be fine again. Goodness, I do believe I need a drink. I feel so strange that in the other room, I really don't know what came over me. The door from the garden opened and Mr. Midas came in. Before we settle down, Mrs. Midas said to John, have a glass of good cold milk. You look so hot. So they didn't know what had happened to her. Well, John thought he certainly wouldn't scare them by t telling them. He watched gratefully as his mother took a frosty blue jug from the refrigerator and poured from it a glass full of icy, creamy milk. Trembling with nervousness, John tilted the glass against his open mouth. The liquid flowed in and down his throat and remained purely milky, deliciously milky, tasting of nothing but fresh, clean milk. After the first long, wonderful gulps, he suddenly recalled that he had not thanked the storekeeper for saving his mother. Mother, he said, may I go up for a minute? I'll be right back. All right, John, she said, but supper will be ready in 10 minutes. Don't keep us waiting. John ran briskly down the street until he came to the corner where he always turned right when he was going to Susan's house. Then he turned left instead and started along the two blocks of unfamiliar street leading to the candy store. Soon he came to the corner where the red big building had been. But there was no building and no store and, of course, no storekeeper. In the corner lot, there was nothing to be seen but a heap of rusty tin cans and broken bottles surrounding a signboard with a new lettering that said, Sold.